Romantics, welcome to a pod to be you, the Talk Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Manish Mather, and we are continuing our bad romance miniseries, which are really uh with a really exciting movie and a really a uh, terrific movie of the 2000s. So I'm very uh thrilled to be talking about it, and I'm equally thrilled to welcome my guest, the host of the Double Edge Double Bill podcast, Thomas Mariani. Hello, welcome. Hello, thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, thanks so much for um for being here. It's you know, I I was on your podcast, I guess earlier this year, and it was a thrill. So mm-hmm. I'm really glad to have you back uh, have you onto my show um and to talk about you know this movie. Would you like to introduce the film for us today? Yes, in case anyone didn't read what's on their podcast <laughs> for what movie we're covering, uh, we are covering uh, Atonement, the 2007 film from director Joe Wright. This is a, a really interesting movie to rewatch because for me, I remember seeing this opening weekend. Uh, it came out my freshman year of college. So kind of like the first time that I was like watching movies like regularly like without my parents or like well I have like and where like I also have to do with like my like college friends who like are also into movies like talk like have opinions because you know when I was in high school like I was pretty much the only one that like watched movies regularly so um like it was a lot of like oh I just like my opinion always felt like the opinion because I had such an echo chamber with myself but then having to like talk to people who like didn't like this movie or who didn't like Keira Knightley or didn't like Joe Wright is very, very strange and, and kind of an interesting experience. Um, but, you know, for you, when was the first time you saw the movie? Like, what, what were your thoughts then? And like, how have they changed now in the past 15 years? Well, I did see this uh, probably around the time it would have gone to video because this was, um, I was in high school and this was early in my sort of like Oscar obsession phase like around the mid 2000s i started getting actually into like watching all the oscar movies and stuff mm-hmm. and this was one that like when i'd heard it was nominated for stuff i was like oh it's a sappy romance movie kind of thing you know the sort of straight white dude little like high schooler kid just like whatever like i was in my i hate titanic phase at that point i've grown out of that since uh that kind of thing uh that just kind of like limited my ability to even like really embrace like big sweeping romances like this. But I think what really interested me was just the fact of like supporting actress nomination for Saoirse Ronan. Yeah. Which was like, um, like, well, she's like 13 and she's nominated for best supporting actress. I got to see what this is about. And uh, yeah, I really was like swept into it and really emotional about it. Like when I did finally see it, like whenever it hit, I don't know, like iTunes rental. <laughs> yeah, um, right. When I would hook up my like iPod uh, 160 gig to my TV. Oh my three, god! Like red, yep. That's how I watched a lot of fucking movies back <laughs> in the day. Uh, but yeah. uh, I remember loving it then, and this is the first time I'd seen it. I think since around that time. Oh wow! And I still think this movie is pretty great. I would say I think it's like it was definitely the first Joe Wright movie I saw, and it got me invested in sort of his ability, especially to like the big one takes and stuff like that. And then you know I knew James McAvoy's Mister Tumnus and Kira Knightley as the, from the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but it really, uh, I think it helped open up my uh, sort of tastes 
at that time. And uh, I, I still appreciate it out to this day for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so, you know, similar for me, especially Saoirse Ronan, because um, when I was watching it, you know, yesterday for this podcast, I was like, oh, she's really young in this movie, you know? And like, of course I know, like, you know, that was 15 years ago, but um, like, she's, I mean, she's so young now. Like, I mean, she must, she's, I, I'm sure she's younger than I am, but um, it's like, I forgot that like, she's like a kid in this movie. Like, even when I like, kind of remembered her in the movie, I remembered her as I saw her in like Little Women or Brooklyn or whatever, where I'm like, oh, she's actually like a child. And it is, I mean, I remember being really like surprised that she was the one that got the Oscar nomination for, for this movie because, you know, she's so young and like Oscars hardly ever reward young actors like that. Um, and, and, and also, also, especially when she's like playing the younger version of someone we see at various different ages played by different Right. Actresses. Like she, she leaves the film, you know, maybe like a third of the way through. And there's also so many other you know, uh, more well-known actresses in, you know, in her role, like Ramal Gare and Vanessa Redgrave, but also Keira Knightley, you know, Brenda Blethyn. Um, So, you know, it's like, wow, like she's, I mean, I feel like I remember, like, even the people that did not like this movie, they were talking about Saoirse Ronan, and she was like the breakout star of this movie, because it was like, who is this child that is like taking on this like incredibly complex role that has so many different things going on with it and like how, I mean, I was like, I remember being really surprised by her and like not really knowing anything about her and really just getting excited when she was getting more roles like in Hannah a couple of years later. And then of course, you know, Brooklyn and uh, Lady Bird and, you know, all, all the rest. So it's really quite, um, quite something. So kind of about this movie in general, what, you know, you said you were really like swept into it and, uh, but like what specifically about the film really like speaks to you? Uh, and kind of like how, like how has like your impression like has your like thoughts on like the plot of the characters changed much since you know from fifteen years ago to now? Well, I think I just really embraced it back in the day as just like this more like traditional, earnest, like sweeping epic romance story. But yeah. as I've gotten older, I think the big thing, especially that I, when I rewatched it here, is I love the way the movie uses like sort of perspective and how people sort of tell stories. Like, yeah. there's so much of, like, how, like, Saoirse Ronan is, like, a writer, and there's so much about her witnessing things and having her own particular interpretation of them, and everybody kind of has that to a certain extent. I love the way that we see, like, the first third of the movie, basically, is from, like, the two shifting perspectives of Ronan and then, like, Kira Knightley and actually James yeah. McAvoy and their yeah. perspectives on it. I, I love the way the movie does that, where you just see, like, all these certain details that we would perceive to be potentially harmful are actually completely earnest from the actual perspectives of the people who are actually, <laughs> like, minding their own business kind of thing. And I, I love the way the movie crafts that, especially with stuff like the, the letter. I think the letter is such a great example of that, where you see, like, James McAvoy just tossing off different drafts and everything, just having a lark with some of these things. And then that whole montage after he hands the letter over to her and he realizes, like, oh, I, I put in final drafts dot PDF instead of final drafts two dot yeah, PDF into yeah. the, the letter and it's gone off. Like, I, I love the way the movie portrays a lot of those elements and how they're, like, interpreted from different points of view. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, like, I think, like, this movie really, uh, like, announces itself as, like, a really kind of different kind of, like, epic love story is, like, the scene when Bryony sees uh, Cecilia, like, stripped down to her 
her like negligee or whatever and dive into the fountain and she sees it and she sees it as like you know oh he's like coercing her or she doesn't really quite understand what she's what she's seeing and she kind of she doesn't understand and because she's not actually there to see the context she interprets it in such a different kind of more malicious way and then you see it and it's like it, it's funny because like when you actually see the context you realize like cecilia is kind of in the power in that situation like she's doing that to like entice get even like scare um robbie a little bit and kind of like show her own kind of agency and like the situation is like completely different than what brian imagined and uh i, I remember just being so like shocked by that and even now watching it being like wow this is really like you know, like the way this movie plays with like these like dynamics within these relationships and these this like love story, it's quite, you know, like the, there's so much of like a guessing game as to like what's really happening and like kind of who's who's like the dominant force and who's the one that's kind of being like subjugated a little. And I, I think this movie is so smart in the way that it really plays with that and kind of keeps you guessing as to like what's really happening. Well, and plus they do such a great job of like conveying the fact that from like these two different perspectives, there's not technically a major villain. It's just more right. a fact of like, because I remember when Saoirse Ronan, around the time this movie came out, everyone was pointing like, oh, she's so great at playing the devil. Like you see that on Letterboxd reviews. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just like Saoirse Ronan so great at playing the worst villain of our modern age. And what I love is like they convey so much of like, this is just a huge mistake a child made, and one yeah. that carries with her throughout the rest of her life. I love the fact that they convey so much about like, her clear crush on James McAvoy, and like, just that, and also at the same time that perspective that we're talking about, where she thinks Kira Knightley is inherently a victim because she's like, oh, she's a girl like me. So she must be in some sort of like victim state as opposed to like yeah, the other yeah. perspective. Kira's in complete control of the situation and wants to have that relationship with McAvoy. Yeah. And just like how that is just so well conveyed with even like the whole drowning scene where it's just like, oh, we're having like a fun game. And McAvoy clearly is just like, no, we, we this is like a serious thing. You almost killed like the both of us by doing this. So she doesn't understand so much of that. And how she immediately, like once we see her um, and her as she's in nursing school, we see that like, oh, already this is like weighing on her deeply and all the way up to like her Vanessa Redgrave age. And yeah. Like, oh, this is something like she'll have to live with for the rest of her life. Yeah. I mean, it's. I, you know, going, talking about like Bryony as the villain, I really had that perspective when I was, you know, 18 watching this movie. And even like, I mean, I've seen this movie a number of times just because, you know, Pride and Prejudice was one of my favorite, is one of my favorite movies of all time. Keira Knightley is one of my favorite actresses. Like, so like her three collaborations with Joe Wright are movies I've seen over and over again. This film and Anna Karenina in 2012. Um, so like, and, I think it wasn't really until I watched it this time. Well, yeah, it wasn't until I watched it this time or like, I think I watched it during like the early days of lockdown as well. Like it wasn't really until then that I was like, oh, she didn't do it on purpose. You know, like she didn't tell this, like it's, I would even, I would not even call it a lie, you know? And like, I think the description on HBO Max calls it a lie. And I'm kind of like, I disagree with that because I feel like she generally thought that she, I think she put all these like pieces together in her mind that like fit into a puzzle. But, and so she made the conclusion that she thought was right. You know, she saw the letter, she saw the fountain scene. She saw what, what looked really, um, she saw the sex scene in the library. Like she saw all that and she put all these pieces together. And I'm like, I kind of get where she came from. And like, you know, it's like, I, I'm not sure she should have spoken so definite, definitely of it. Cause but I can see where she was coming from. And I feel like it's, 
it's understandable. But I, but what I find interesting is that I think like she paints herself as the villain. You know, like in the scene at the end when you know where she, like it's like the scene that's like in the book. You know, where she goes to like visit Cecilia and Robbie. That scene, like it's her like kind of like depicting her own guilt. You know, especially with like how violent Robbie gets towards her and like how much he's castigating her i'm like this is her own guilt talking and so i feel like she really feel like you know we see with ramola gary as well as, as a nurse as you mentioned um and we see with vanessa redgrave as well um that like it's like eating at her this and i'm like i you know she, she yeah she did ruin his life but i don't think she meant it maliciously and i think that's kind of one of the central like questions or themes or like conflicts in the film is like can something that's that like um wasn't done maliciously like have like have this effect on everyone around yeah it, it's less uh an intentional lie and more really bad detective work yeah just really sloppy detective work on yeah <laughs> uh, but but even like how they visually depict some of that were like the actual like scene of where she like discovers uh s- somebody on top of Juno temple if you pause like on the one brief shot it's almost like this weird like anamorphous sort of like thing that's there it's not quite like any kind of actual person and it feels like it's like from the perspective of somebody who quickly saw something that immediately like in their mind they can't quite figure it out so those elements that we're talking about like kind of put all the clues together basically and also like we mentioned this earlier but like oh it's there's so many interesting people in this movie i completely forgot like this movie was a weird like (laughs) time jump basically to go back it's like oh (laughs) juno temple benedict cumberbatch (laughs) alfie allen but not not yeah. like what the hell? I didn't know. I do not remember any of these people being in this movie. <laughs> I know the um, Alfie Allen is the one that really surprised me because you know, I mean, this was like a couple of years before Game of Thrones started. So like, I mean, I know he was like around, I guess, but like, yeah, I totally forgot that it was him, and it definitely was one of those things where like I only recognized him now because of you know, I mean, you see literally every part of him on Game of Thrones. <laughs> but- um yeah it's uh it's wild and juno temple too and like again she was one that i was like i forgot that like you were a child and like she looks like a child yeah um she also like has that like she kind of looks like little orphan annie sometimes because she's so has such like red rosy cheeks and that like bright red hair i'm like you look like a child um like literally but uh yeah i mean it's crazy it's it's so crazy to see her and like benedict cumberbatch i mean i i don't think i saw him until yeah, I don't. I think Doctor Strange must have been the first. Oh no, Imitation Game. That was probably the first movie I saw of it with him in it. But even that was like years before, years after Atonement. And it's crazy to think that like he was just, yeah. It, it's it's definitely was, a weird like time jump movie for sure. Yeah, with that ratty mustache <laughs> and that particular British accent, where it's just like you have to bite it, <laughs> like the chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> so there's stuff like there's there's a lot of like it's a perfectly cast movie. Like there's yeah. some, and even down to like this was obviously like I said, McAvoy I knew from like the Chronicles of Narnia to Mister yeah, Thomas yeah. before this. And what I love is like you can see here like so much of what I've loved ever since uh, when I've become more of a fan of him in the later movies. It's just the fact that he has this true intensity about every emotion. Like it's not even like there's obviously the stuff where he's like screaming or yelling. He has that kind of like split bit <laughs> kind of thing. But yeah. at the same time, when even like he's just like chilling out. Or when he's got these like true like romantic sort of uh, you know uh, 
feelings toward Kira Knightley and just with like the small touches of hands and stuff like that, you feel that intensity off both of them. You really feel the fact that it's just like, oh, this is like an unrequited love just waiting to burst in the actual library scene, which even then is done with just like a great close up. Like it's not as like big and giant as like any kind of big like sex scene in a romance movie. It's just like, no, it's like a very quiet, intimate, kind of awkward, but in a way that's actually genuinely sensual way. Yeah. Um, I have you read the book Atonement. I have not. Neither have I, but I remember reading like reviews that were saying that like that scene really captures like exactly like the um the way that it's written in the in the book. Um I remember some like reading somewhere that like um like Brian described seeing them looking like some kind of like insect or whatever, like because of like the arms spread out and like the green dress and all that. And <laughs> A little beast with two backs. Like, it kind looks of like that. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, and like I agree that I think the the um, the way that the, that scene is like performed feels like especially when you see from their perspective, it's very intimate and sensual. And you see it from hers, it looks very ugly and scary. And like, you know, she's 13 years old. She's never seen anything like that. She doesn't even know what she's seeing. Um, And uh, yeah, it's really quite intense. And I agree about James McAvoy to go back to your earlier point. um, You know, he's a really, he's a really fascinating actor. Like, I think his performances in the like uh, split and uh, glass are really incredible. And I think it's like, he has that intensity and that ability to show off these emotions. Like um, kind of like my, fa- like, like my favorite parts of this, like his performance was like, the, like the, the middle section when he's at war and in the prison and just like the, like the grief and the hurt and the like resign, but also that like, he just has this like, um, really like emotional face during those moments and you're like heartbreaks for him and you're like it's you know to kind of I mean to kind of add to the like feelings of like guilt and and, and stuff with, with him it's like wow like you're really suffering so much because of something that happened that had, you had no control over yeah he's a really great what I like to call forehead actor yeah in terms of, like he really knows how to utilize like obviously actors know how to utilize their mouths or their brows but his forehead yeah works perfectly right. for his face particularly like whenever he's screaming he has that like one vein in the middle that he's just like oh, oh no shit is serious when yeah. you see that vein it's gonna get real yeah yeah um yeah that's that's really really smart <laughs> um in terms of like um uh, in in terms of like the uh, the, the like middle section, um, what are some of like the moments that really stand out to you? Well, I mean, the, the obvious thing is like given Joe Wright is like the the big elaborate one shot that lasts about five minutes, and yeah, Mac, uh, and Wright has gotten some criticism I've heard from that. Like a lot of filmmakers who do one shots, where a lot of people say, "Oh, it's just showy. There's no like real point to it." Um, except to just show of like, look how elaborate we can be with our like with, with this particular shot and having so many extras and stuff like that in there. But what I like is the fact that that shot sneaks up on you the first time. Like, I didn't really realize it until around like when the horses were falling over. Like, oh, shit, this is one shot. I didn't even notice yeah. that because it feels just like you're immersed in this particular moment. of Like, look, they're all here on this beach where there's like so many different people in various states of either like, you know, shell shock or 
horror or you know some are celebrating there's like this elaborate thing it just it helps to show off the fact that like while we are covering this very intimate story about this guy going through war after like so much tragedy happened to him um it before he was like put off to prison and everything i i love the fact that we just see that like no there's like a huge war that's going on this is our peak into like well there's a larger world that's going on just to really ground you in the fact that like despite just following this one dude throughout all of this there's so much more that's going on on the outside of this. And he's just like one little piece of this. And that's why it kind of works with like the, by the end of the story where so much of it is about like, Oh, these two people who like had a love connection, but then were completely like lost to the horrors of war and the time. I, I love the fact that it just shows off that like, well, this is like one little slice of a massive pie. That was this like horrific war that destroyed so many lives. It's just one of many that we're seeing. No, I definitely agree with you. And like, I don't like that criticism of one shots that they're just showy. Um, I think they work especially well with um, war films. I mean, 1917, of course, being the the major one. But um, I mean, Joe Wright, like that's, you know, I that's his signature. And I, I think what, you know, what makes his long takes really effective is like, how much they really have a lot of thematic resonance. Like, I totally agree with your interpretation of, like, you know, Robbie is now, like, I mean, the fact that the first Lotus movie takes place entirely on the estate, and you have this, like, really, you know, sheltered, really um, claustrophobic kind of setting, right, where, you know, these little, this, like, little drama plays out, and, you know, there's really no rhyme or reason, and, you know, it's this, like, class structure where, you know, of course, the poor, you know, farmhand or whatever is, is the one that's going to get the fall. But then, like, you know, war is kind of the great equalizer where you have, like, all these people from all different backgrounds who are in this experience. And Robbie, as you're saying, I totally agree with you, is that he's just this, like, one piece of it. And there's this whole expansive thing and to seeing the horrors of it. And not not only that he's one piece of it, but also that, like, he went from, you know, because of this his like situation and and you know the charges and whatever he's now in this place where he has to survive and he has to like really get out there and like just how um you know how much his um his life is really altered going from this like beautiful estate to you know this like prison or the beach of dunkirk and stuff and you know i really think that that's quite it really shows and you know like in pride and prejudice um the 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 long takes are used to kind of show like how much like just like kind of show you like life and at these balls and you know how all the different characters are interacting with the other guests or to the music or to each other and how they you know these little like petty class rivalries kind of play out and you know um and so it, it makes sense to show that like the, the longevity of a party and the like the different characters that kind of come and go and how you know all these things are happening. So uh, to me, I think Joe Wright makes good use of his long takes and and especially in in you know, his three Kira Knightley movies and in Hannah as well. The it's to it's I don't think it's just to show off. I think there's a lot of thematic resonance to it, and I think that there's a lot of artistry there to really highlight the choreography of these and to kind of bring out the characters even more so than to the performances or the writing or the um you know music or whatever 
Right, yeah. It's only at his worst when it's like in something like Pan, and it's like, I have to do something to entertain people. <laughs> this is so terrible. I have to, oh, look, the ship's going by, it's like one big take, everybody. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, you know, give or take our darkest hour, which I don't love, but I don't hate. Like, his career has kind of been like, I mean, I do want to talk about it because, like, I feel like Keir Knightley has the, she's the King Midas for him, because and Saoirse Ronan, too, because I really like Hannah, but for the last 10 years, I'm like, what are you, what's been going on, man? Like, I don't know. I never saw Cyrano, but I just, it did not look that interesting to me. Um, no, yeah. I was also not a big fan of Darkest Hour, or as I call it, Big Mama's House 4, Churchill's in Session. Yeah. Wasn't huge on that. But. <laughs> Wait, I got to hear why you call it that. I just... <laughs> I mean, it's because he's in the big fat suit. It's like, it's, it's basically, it's Gary Oldman doing a Big Mama's House movie, but it's Churchill. <laughs> that is, man, I, I love that. That's great. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's also like Woman in the Window. Yeah. But oh yeah, I never saw that either. Like, I mean, that, that had like all the production difficulties. I think it's, it's, it's weird how like when he especially tried to do like sort of much more mainstream, like American blockbuster things or like the more traditional Oscar bait, it doesn't allow him to do like these interesting twists and turns, like even in the middle of all this there's the soloist which is a thankfully forgotten movie oh that's like one of yeah yeah, one of the worst examples of just like oh a rich man helps a homeless guy out and everything's great right (laughs) just like it it definitely shows that like when he's able to take on like either like a pride and prejudice atonement or even like a hannah that's like for being a a, a, you know an action thriller movie it is such a bizarre weird take on that it has like a fairy tale angle and anna karenina like where the the one takes in those are really to show off the fact that like in Hannah, it's like oh, how proficient she actually is as um, an an actual like threat, and then in Anna Karenina, it's to show off the fact that it's like this is elaborate story that's being constructed as like a set in front of you. It's to show off the sort of facade that's going on with the story right, at the same right. time. Yeah, like I think those are the ones where, as opposed to when the one take is just like, uh, let's have you know <laughs> Churchill going down to parliament to talk about whatever it just feels like it's a lot more like he's kind of uh you know wasted on lesser material yeah i mean i think yeah i totally agree with that and you know these four his like four best movies i think that like you know sure like two of them are based actually i mean atonement is also kind of a acclaimed novel of course but like three of them are based on these like very like prestigious novels and but he's I think because these books are so prestigious and so studied and so classic, he's able to really put his own like idiosyncratic touch to them, which is why they really stand out and why, you know, like the conceit in Anna Karenina, which I, I don't want to talk about Anna Karenina too much because I would love to talk about on this podcast, but the conceit with Anna Karenina with it being like the theatricality of the set design reflects sort of the theatricality of these people's lives and how, as you're saying, they're on facade and, you know, they'll speak with British accents because like they're putting on these performances and like, you know, Keira Knightley and Alan Taro Johnson, like they break the theatricality because they're the ones that are breaking from these norms. Um, that makes sense to me. And that's a way to kind of bring out the essence of the novel in a way that doesn't just that in a way that goes beyond just translating it page to screen. Because, you know, I've never been a fan of novel adaptations that just do a one-to-one translation. Because I'm like, if I want the book, I'll read the book. I want a movie that takes chances and cuts things out and moves things around and really shows some kind of artistic vision beyond just like, this is a popular book and we have to put it on screen. And I mean, I really, I guess I that's something that's, I guess, kind of an unpopular opinion because I know a lot of people like little translations, but... um 
to me, I'm like the things that Joe Wright does with Pride and Prejudice and and, and Atonement and Akrenina. It's like, wow, you're really showing that you have some like you have like a thought about this as a film beyond just like this is an important book that needs to be on screen. And I mean, I know I've never read Atonement nor Anacrenna, to be honest, but um, I feel like these movies are very much their own pieces and they comment on the book while also adopting it. Yeah, and I think it what also helps is the fact that like those one shots are so good in his movies, especially when contrasted with just like small, more intimate scenes, like in Atonement. The one I almost like forgot about until rewatching it now is the scene where Bryony is at the bedside, the deathbed of that French soldier. Yeah, which I I'd almost completely forgotten about. And I love how in that scene, it's like a very simple, like sort of like two shots, you know, kind of like, like over the shoulders and stuff, but you see so much of like the reactions off these actors faces and the way the dialogue sort of transforms is basically the synapses of that French soldier, like going off. And then that shot of like her unwrapping the bandages and seeing just a gaping wound where the brain is visible. It's this like visceral, very like quick moment that just immediately uh, sort of spells out what the scene's going on and what what's the sort of tragedy that's inherent here as she's like literally sitting by this guy right before he dies. It's a, it's a beautiful moment. And I feel like she's also in a sense um, imagining or realizing that this could be Robbie. Right. You know, he could be in some hospital somewhere with his, you know, innards being, you know, or having some of these like gaping wounds and stuff. And, and it's like I think this really adds to her guilt, and like I, I think in some ways she's, a, you know, well, not in some ways. It's the literal title of the book, but she's atoning for, you know, these um, for her actions by caring for. I mean, I think there's a reason why, like, she goes into nursing and why she's in this position where she is, where she's like, I sent someone that I cared about to war, so let me at least help these other soldiers and you know be with them in their in these moments and. You know, she's kind of realizing this, and um, yeah, I really like that scene a lot. I mean, I re- actually, it's it's funny because um, Saoirse Ronan, of course, gets a lot of the praise for her performance, but I'm actually also a big fan of Ramona Gary because I feel like she does a lot of heavy lifting too, just in her like stoicism, because she's so still and she's like, you know, her hair is very severe. She's in this very severe nursing outfit, you know, like in some ways she's like putting her own guilt onto her body and just being so like unwilling to let herself even have a little bit of joy. I mean, even the stuff she's writing is reflecting on her past and like, yeah, she's, you know, like the way that she's like, you know, laughing with her friends, you know, it's like, sure. She's laughing with them, but I think she's also just not really allowing herself. I mean, there's a reason why she's doing this and she's not some like fancy writer in the forties, you know, Um, she's really putting herself through this as a way to, I think like exercise the guilt that she has. And it's really, I think Ramola Gary does a really incredible job of playing that and really showing it really, um, a woman who's going through a lot of pain and trauma, but without showing it too much on her, but like the, by not showing it so much, she's showing so much. 
Right. And even just the small detail that she keeps calling, like using her first name as a nurse and yeah. her uh, headmistress, like completely scolds her, like, no, you have to, you're Miss Talis. You're yeah. Miss Talis, as opposed to uh, like she calling Brian. Like she wants to have that intimate connection with other people because she basically like destroyed an intimate connection with somebody else. She's just like, well, no, I want to like find some kind of connection on like that. But she feels like she can't even like approach that really unless it's like as a nurse to somebody at the bedside as opposed yeah. to anything else. Uh, and shout out to, I do love the fact that it's 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 a genuinely interesting thing about how like she doesn't change the the representation that she hasn't changed that much is her hair is pretty much the same all the way of Vanessa Redgrave but it's also like you never change that style like once in like 70 years you never changed your hair at all it's like the exact same style the entire time yeah yeah I agree um <laughs> I so in kind of you know, jumping off the back of your point about her distorting connection, like I want to talk about her and Cecilia and her and Lola as like these two, you know, sisterly, friendly relationships that kind of get shattered by this incident. Um, I want to talk about Karen Knightley because I, I think she gets the least showy role of the three leads or the four leads just because she's like, she's not quite the victim because that's Robbie and she's not the instigator because that's Bryony, but she is part of the story and i mean i am really impressed by her performance of the subtlety of it and just like you know the the strength she shows with robbie and the um you know Keira knightley I, I mentioned like this was one of the first times i like had a movie that was like a, a major movie that i had to talk to people about who didn't always agree with it or didn't like it um and i definitely remember Keira knightley was a part of that conversation like i definitely remember my friends like impersonating her like jaw and stuff being like wait people out there don't like carrie knightley that's crazy because i love her and i loved her and everything i've seen of her is like ben and like beckham pirates of course pride and prejudice it was very strange and love actually of course is very strange but um i mean i think she's incredible in this movie and i think that like she gets the like unsung hero part of the film because like she has to like hold herself together for Robbie. And I think like her like longing for him and even in the beginning, just like her, I mean, in the first act, like her just, you know, the way, like, as you mentioned, like she exerts her like sexual agency to him and the way she's like subtly like flirts with him and, you know, her passion for him. It's really quite a, uh, quite an interesting performance. And I really like her performance in the, in her last, uh, in her last scene. Um, because again, like her anger is there, but there's like that sadness and that like loss, but also like, you know, her relationship is com- like her relationship with her family is completely gone now in in a really sad way, and I think she plays that really well. Yeah, I think with Knightley, it's interesting because um, obviously, like my introduction was with those pirates movies, and yeah. like so much of like her early career that I think made. Her- her such a big star is that people like to cast her sort of as like the way that she looks like it's very much like an old school starlet like she could have been in like silent films basically she has that kind of like physique and even her face the way that she like you mentioned the jaw angle of it like it, it feels like she's very expressive in this way but also so many people i think kind of took those a lot of like her like unfortunately a lot of sort of like uh her the body image for being so skinny and i think they kind of cast her so much as like a fragile person and i think that kind of unfortunately limited a lot of her roles especially as of recent where it's just kind of like oh she's been kind of like lost in the weeds and doing shit like nutcracker in the four realms and whatever okay (laughs) i'm sorry she's 
amazing in that movie. She's amazing. I'm not saying she's she's the best part of that movie. That very terrible movie with her weird accent. I'm not saying I'm not saying she's bad in that. But I think the the bigger thing with like her is like so many people try to cast her as more like oh she's like a China doll. Like yeah. we can't really like move her too much, even though like in the Pirates movie she's a badass and other things yeah, like that. Yeah. Like I think it's it's a weird problem because like in this movie I think that's what kind of works to the strength because Sears Ronan is almost like Hollywood casting agents where it's like oh she's fragile. She can't be like touched by anybody. She's gonna like yeah. fall apart as opposed to no, she's actually a strong person who doesn't have to have like that traditional kind of like body image to be like, oh no, I'm I actually have like inner strength and I can show that off and so much turmoil and regret. And she is so photogenic in so many like great sequences. Like the shots were like as Robbie's being taken off or when he comes back to the estate, and the way Joe Wright like puts her center. And they have like a couple people off to the side in the background, just the way the placement of it, like she feels like so like inherently almost like a mast in front of a ship. She immediately is just like such a striking image to like be front and center that immediately puts you in that perspective. Or even the way that like the reverse, like it, they show initially like from Ronan's perspective in like forward motion and they play it backwards when mm. um, Robbie's thinking back. I oh, yeah, love the yeah. way that that looks with, like all the smoke that's like billowing back out. And she's like, once again, very front and center. She has like a lot of that more strength. Than I think a lot of people give her credit for in terms of uh, recent casting. I definitely agree. And I, I mean, I hate that people are like, she's only good in like period movies. That's all she does. Like what did I actually went through her credits and I counted how many, like how many performances she did and how many of those are period pieces. And it's actually less than half. Um, because there's a lot of like modern movies that I don't think people really have seen or, or know too much about. Like this movie last night she did, she's really good in that movie. Um, Laggies, of course, begin again. I mean, I love her performance in Laggies. I've never seen that. Um, the Lynn Shelton film with Chloe Grace Moretz and Sam Rockwell. It's like it's like Kieran Knightley doing the very like indie mumble corey kind of like romantic comedy. Um mm-hmm. and uh she she plays an American. She puts on American accent, which I think sounds pretty good. Like, um, it's a really really great movie. I love that movie. It's I think it's among my favorite Lynn Shelton movies and Karen Knightley movies and Sam Rockwell movies. So it, it's really a great movie. But you know, she's I think the, the the reason why she's so good in these period movies is not because she. I mean, I, you're absolutely right that you know, people put her in these because she has that, like, China doll look, and, like, she looks very fragile, but I think she's really good in them because she puts a lot of interiority and a lot of strength into these performances. Like, another really great performance from her is this movie The Duchess, which she does in 2008, which um, she plays Duchess Georgiana, and it's an extremely visceral physical performance she does. Like, it is not her in a stuffy period movie that you would see in the 80s. It's a very, like, um, full throttle performance and she's it's one of her best performances in a very little scene movie and like um, it's like the reason why she does these and she's so good at them is because she puts all this like she puts her whole body into these performances and she really brings a lot of life and vitality and modernity to them that's why she's so good in the pirates movies is that like she is that like action heroine and she's someone that we can really relate to. I mean, she's the, like, to me, she's the, like the protagonist of that series, right? Like I know Johnny Depp, like he becomes the star because Jack Sparrow was a breakout hit, whatever, who cares? But to me, she and but what Lester's, about Orlando Bloom? We loved him so much. Yeah. I mean, I think the two of them, they're the stars of like, they're supposed yeah. to be the nominal stars of the, of the, of that series. And I think, you know, especially in the first one, like her, like she really, you know, she really does a lot there and she makes she makes that first movie her own 
Um, even when I think, you know, what's his face tries to steal it from her. <laughs> um, but uh, so I think the reason why, like, she's so good in Atonement and Akrenina, Pride and Prejudice, the Duchess, the Pirates movies is that, like, you know, Colette, which is another kind of little scene movie she does. Um, she's just so personal. It's like she really, you know, it's like she's the her like her period performances aren't just a crutch. You know, she puts so much effort and life and thought into them. And I think that's why like she's so successful in these roles and in every role is that like, you know, she really puts in a lot of personality. Yeah, one of my favorite in terms of underrated nightly performances is Never Let Me Go. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Uh, which I think is, like, a phenomenally underrated, like, very grounded sci-fi movie. And she is great in that. And even also, a movie that I'm not a huge fan of, but I love her in it, is uh, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. Yes. Where she takes kind of, like, a very traditional kind of, like, manic pixie dream yeah, girl type part yeah. and makes it a lot more of her own. Where, like, I'm supposed to believe that this, like, amazingly stunning, funny, vivacious woman wants to spend the last days on Earth with Steve Carell. <laughs> Steve Carell. <laughs> but, you know, she, she makes you believe Carell. it. I know, like, not yet, not even, like, the, like, not even funny, charming Steve Carell, but, like, sad sack, like, I hate my life. Day in real life, gonna lay on some pancakes, yeah, Steve right, Carell. Exactly. Yeah. But she makes it work because she's so good at her job. Um, yeah, and even in Never Let Me Go, she's kind of in the same kind of role where she's, like, kind of, like, that third person in the triangle that like the central conflict doesn't really like involve her in a sense you know like i mean she's there mm-hmm. but she's all kind of i don't want to say she's like collateral damage but like she's the like you know she's the love interest there too kind of like an atonement but she because she's so thoughtful and and so much and she's so vital she makes these roles more important than they might be on the page or kind of with a less yeah. like a, 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 an actor who's not really like a big star like she is. Right. So I, I do want to talk about uh, Lola and that whole situation. I mean, this is like the bad romance miniseries. And I feel like this movie is a lot about these like bad choices that people make and how, you know, like, you know, Bryony's infatuation with Robbie is kind of this like toxic thing that she doesn't quite know how to handle and, and, you know, her as a parallel to Lola, played by Juno Temple, is kind of interesting to me because, you know, that wedding scene, um, like, it knocks me out every time. You know, like, like the way the editing is done with her remembering, you know, as she actually realizes what she saw. And then the really chilling part when Lola kind of, like, ducks her eyes when she passes Bryony on her way out of the church. I mean, it just makes it just, it's so chilling. And you see, like, this entire... Like, I, I feel you can kind of tell her whole future um, with just that. And just, like, kind of, like, what's, you know, kind of, like, I don't know. I don't know. What are your thoughts on Lola and that whole, like, that really uncomfortable relationship? I think they do a really great job of using sort of, like, that relationship between uh, Lola and Benedict Cumberbatch's character, Paul, to, like, really show, like, what Saoirse Ronan perceives to be predatory behavior with yeah. like the Robbie character is completely contrasted by like, no, it's totally like what Cumberbatch is doing the entire time where he's just like, Oh, he's trying to play nice guy. And he's trying to be like, here, here's a bit of chocolate. And then he clearly like leading her on into like some kind of like attempted sexual relationship that becomes unfortunately consummated at a certain point yeah. uh, against her will. I think they do such a great job of like contrasting those two things. And even that, that sort of like banality of evil that's going on there. 
like that one shot where like everyone's looking for the kids and Cumberbatch is just like sleeping on the couch. Like, oh, you fucking monster piece of shit. Of course, you're just like, oh, I'm going to sleep away all of this. Uh, but with Lola, I just I, I do love the fact that like she's already under so much stress that's been going on with like having to, you know, try and keep her brother, her twin brothers together as everything's falling apart with her family and that great scene where like she's trying to play like no i'm the adult here i'm yeah. older than all three of you by two years so therefore i'm totally an adult i'm gonna right. be helping you out no i think yeah no i agree yeah yeah and the then leading up to like her breaking down in front of Bryony about just like oh they want to go home and they think i'm the one keeping them here and she can only really confide in Bryony because like she's the closest one in age to her since right. everyone else is so much older and then that tragic bit where like she comes up to uh, Bryony comes up to lola after she's been horribly assaulted and raped and she just has this look like the way that juno temple is saying all this stuff about like i didn't i didn't see anything i don't know it like really sells the fact that like this is an innocent young girl yeah who has been horribly manipulated and she doesn't even know like what happened to her she's in such a confused state and that she has to rely on the only other person which is a girl that's like two years younger than her because she doesn't want to like really confide like she doesn't know have that much information and she doesn't really confide in the adults at the same time because she wants to be like independent on her own there's a real tragedy to that and i agree the the contrast also at that wedding scene where you have um juno temple like avoid Bryony's gaze and versus benedict cumberbatch does like a double take like he's a fucking comedic buffoon of an asshole yeah. <laughs> just like what is that yeah. her? um i think like, it does such a great job of conveying like she's had to age so quickly because of all this horrible stuff that's happened. And like literally the only person she can like sadly find any kind of solace in is the person who totally manipulated her into that situation. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, um, you know, I kind of wondered like what lies she had to tell herself in order to, you know, agree to this marriage or she even agreed to it. Like, did he coerce her? Did he manipulate her? Did like, I'm sure he like groomed her. I mean, we don't see it. It's all off screen, but like, you know, it makes you wonder like what, um, it's like, I wonder kind of what happened there, but also I feel like I know because of like the suggestion in the filmmaking and, and, you know, you, you mentioned like the banality of evil and like, I feel like this is definitely like a class, um, like this is a class conflict, right? Because he's this like rich guy and, um, you know, he's played with better Cumberbatch, he's very polished, very sophisticated, and he can like hide out as this like predator and, um, you know, the way he manipulates everyone around him. And then Robbie, who is like actually innocent and, um, but because he's of a lower class, it's like automatically everyone just believes that he's the culprit because, oh, you know, his dad ran off or whatever. And, you know, he's like working to pay off a loan. So like, it's just like the way that that really, that dynamic, that class dynamic plays out is fascinating to me. Um, And the fact that like, yeah, I mean, he can, or Paul Marshall, Benedict Cumberbatch's character, he could just, like, get away with it. And not only that, but, like, marry his victims. Like, whatever happened, whether she had to delude herself to thinking that he loves her or he coerced her in some way or some mixture of the two, eventually he gets away with it and he's immune. And, you know, all these lives that were broken because of his action doesn't matter to him. He's just living his life. And that's that's the that's what makes me sick about this movie and it really is fascinating to think about of course and it's very interesting to 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 consider but it's like horrifying yeah i mean that class conflict is perfectly established by the fact that Bryony finds out about this from like a news on the march reel at the theater 
just that it's like oh he's like basically charles foster kane everyone's just like oh no he's a big guy big talented dude everyone loves him so much but it's like it's one thing like he puts on this facade just like i have you know i am an upperclassman yet at the same time he's literally a pedophile handing candy to a child to coerce her he's like a base level monster right right and yet it's all hidden and no one i feel like no one would believe anyone because like it's all like oh but he's comes from such a nice family i mean like to me he's like the poster child for like these kinds of like sons of rich families that get away with all these crimes because everyone loves them you know like he's i'm sure he's very charming he's really good at like easing people into submission but then like under all that he's a total monster and yeah it's really it's really quite uh it's it's quite an interesting performance from benedict cumberbatch because i think you know, now having seen him in so many roles, and like, you know, of course I love him as Doctor Strange, I love him in The Power of the Dog, um, but seeing him in such a, like, slimy role, I'm like, wow, like, he's really, he's, it's like he's not even, like, he's so good at hiding it, like, you know, and he's so good at, like, playing both sides of his personality and kind of in the same, in, like, the same moment. Yeah, part of why I really liked Power of the Dog is, like, it showed off that side of him for the first time, I think, in a while that you've mm-hmm. seen the tome and that kind of, like, sure, yeah. initial charm that's, like, kind of slimy. It's a bummer that dude became, like, a Tumblr boyfriend after Sherlock. <laughs> I know. And it's just like, oh, man, no, he, like, he's perfect at playing, like, bizarre creeps. And I wish he would, like, dip into that a bit more in I between mean, doing, you know, Doctor Strange's. Yeah, I mean, the the magic trick of the Power of the Dog is that he starts out that way, but as the film goes on, like... right. You know, the like he becomes the victim in a sense, and like he kind of becomes more vulnerable and more emotional. And the power dynamics of that film shifts so much in within the course of the film. And there's such a, um, it's 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 really quite. Uh, but that's all because of like his ability to play these kind of like sleazy, very like um, uncomfortable, manipulative characters that you really like. It took me, I think, two watches to really understand <laughs> that shift in the power of the dog because I'm just so used to Benedict being so uncomfortable. I mean, even Doctor Strange, like he's the hero, but he's very wry. He's very tricky. I mean, you know, it's it's. I mean, he's I think he's really becoming one of my favorite actors and because of the power of the dog and now seeing him in atonement again, it's like, wow, like you have so much depth and, uh, and, and nuance in your performances that I feel like don't get exploited. I mean, forget the MCU. I think even like in Sherlock or whatever, I, I just don't think he really gets to capture that. Yeah. I mean, that, that show went off the rails very quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that didn't yeah. help him out. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, is there anything else that I do want to talk about the green dress, which is, I think, one of the most famous parts of the film. Uh, it's a great dress. Karen Eddy looks wonderful in it. Um, it has its own Wikipedia page, which I encourage everyone to read. Um, <laughs> because uh, it's, um, to me, it, it's like when people think of atonement, I think they think of the dress, but it's not just the dress, but it's that like library scene is just so memorable and it's so perfectly executed in like the it's two perspectives um and uh yeah i also want to talk about the score um i'm sure you have thoughts about the score by oh god dario Mar- martinelli oh god I oh, yeah dario yeah. martinelli yeah, yeah. Did you like the score? Is it something that really... Oh, um, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a really solid, like, sweeping score. I think that dude, I mean, he's done such great work with... Sorry, that was my dog. Um, he's done such great work with, um, like, the, you know, uh, 
not just with like Joe Wright, but um, I think he does a pretty great job of like managing to create these like big sweeping scores that don't feel like they're showy necessarily. Yeah. Um, I think you can see that and, um, you know, all the way down, he has such a more diverse career, I think, than just doing period pieces with like as far recently as like Paddington 2 and stuff yeah. like that. Like he has like a much more diverse career than people give him credit for. I, I love the use of typewriter. Um, in yes. the score. And I love that because it's not just a cute gimmick, but it, it, it kind of is foreshadowing of the ending, you know, because like, as you hear this typewriter, you, you know, it, it makes you wonder like how much of this film is really what happened and how much of it is just the novelization version of it. And like, you know, I, I know the, like the ending feels so written, right? Like the last scene between the three of them feels very like, it does feel like a written scene versus like w- how people talk normally. And I, I love that while having, you know, when you rewatch the movie, you realize like how much of it feels very much like um, the dialogue feels a little trite in that kind of like writerly way. <laughs> um, doesn't feel right. all that natural, but that's so intentional. And it, it's, I think it's a really smart screenplay in that sense and really smartly performed. But I do love the typewriter because I love how much it, it really as you watch the movie over and over again, it really brings to mind that like this is someone's like novel version of a book. Um, and especially how it transitions out of like using the typewriter into more traditional score and then back yeah. into the typewriter, right? Where it feels like you're getting like as much as I agree that like some of that stuff feels like very much like oh I am reading a book as opposed to like seeing people interact naturally. Like you get once again that's kind of like swept up into like the big romantic elements yeah. of it, so that you forget the typewriter element until like kind of sweeps back in. And I, I did want to ask, like, how do you feel about sort of that ending where you find out that, like, so much of, like, the, the last part of this was, you know, written as part of the book as opposed to, like, what actually happened? I remember when I was younger, it felt anticlimactic. And it felt anticlimactic in that, like, oh, these two just, like, never really saw each other again, never got to have that moment in real life. Um, and it also felt like a little bit, I was like, well, you know, Brian, you're kind of cheating because you're saying you're like, you're giving them the happy ending, but well, they never actually got it, you know, like, I don't know, but I kind of find a little poetic and like bittersweet. And, um, you know, I, as I get older, I'm realizing how much I love bittersweet, sad endings in romance movies just because like, I feel like they give me more to think about and more, um, you know, they're just, I think they just are, I'm starting to appeal, they're starting to appeal to me more than I think more conventional happy endings, which I still do love, but I'm kind of like, I love this idea of thinking like, um, you know, these these kids, like, they, they, you know, it just couldn't work for them. You know, they have, they have this tragic ending, but now they have this very, like, they, like, in some ways, they are, their love stories, like, crystallized in amber, and that, like, it's untainted by you know, by the war, by Bryony's actions, by separation, by death. Instead, they can just live in this little, like, idyllic little shack on the beach. Not shack, I mean, it's a nice house, but, like, this little nice little cabin on the beach. And, like, they can just live in that forever. And, you know, but, you know, knowing it's, I don't know, it's kind of, it's kind of a, a tricky, tricky ending for me. How about yourself? Well, what I like is especially, like, I agree with you. I think that's what I thought more around the time the movie came out. Uh, but as, especially we're watching it this time, I, I love the fact that it, in contrast with, like, the stuff that we at least are aware that happened, that, like, everything at the estate, that, like, we absolutely know that, like, from Ronan's point of view. Yeah. I love the fact that, like, that stuff could easily, like, as much as there's, like, so much passion and charm in that, 
I can almost see like a world where if they actually had no interruptions, that could have just been a summer fling. That could have been like, oh, we've been building up to this for so long. Yeah. But then end up kind of like fizzling out versus right, having right. it be like this sort of thing where it's like, well, we they never got to have that chance to have that relationship flourish. They never yeah. got the chance to actually see what that could be. And that Ronan is just like, well, um, that Bryony is basically just like, you know what? I'm going to give them this happy ending in my own way. It's like the mere penance I can give, given I can't change anything about what happened previously. And I love the way that this is another great filmmaking te- uh, filmmaking technique that uh, uh, that Wright uses. How many times like people are like, we kind of like do a big uh, sort of like push in on them and the entire background fades away. Yeah. And you almost see them like in stark black background just to show up like with like Nessa Redgrave or like Saoirse Ronan. The fact that Bryony is being as honest as they can potentially be at this point, like very emotionally true at that time when she's saying stuff like either that confession of like, this is what I saw versus like by the end of it, just like how she completely destroyed their lives and just wanted to have some kind of penance to give them of just like, you know, spiritually they they did actually have this connection. They did find each other again and they fell and then they were madly in love and had the happy ending that I could never have them give. Cause the starkness of the actual endings that they got that we see, which is like, Oh, he died of like dysentery in that sewer. Yeah. And she died like from drowning inside of uh, the tube station. It's right. such a beautiful way of showing up. Like, well, the only thing we can really get out of that is just like, Oh man, that's, that's a fucking bummer. They couldn't get together and they were ho- like horrible victims. One of many, like we were talking about earlier of this right. war and the contrast of it just being like, well, you know, somebody got some kind of like brief bit of happy ending. That is once again, contrasted, like you mentioned with just the fact that like, this is all I could give them as opposed to what actually happened. Yeah. I and then mean, we can get something out of that. Yeah. I totally agree. And I, I, I find that like their real life deaths are, I mean, they're horrible deaths, but they're kind of mundane for the period and for like, right. especially like the wartime. And so it's like, yeah, she's giving them, she's giving them the like kind of conclusion to this epic love story that they had of being separated by war and brought back together. And um, yeah, it's, I, I kind of like that as a conclusion because I think what I found anticlimactic is like, yeah, I mean, okay, he died from a disease that a lot of soldiers got and she died from, you know, drowning in a tube station for, you know a lot of people have, like that's happened to a lot of people but now like you know this um so like in some ways like the characters can have it both ways and and you know kind of reminds me of little women but also Saoirse Ronan where you know she's writing a book that is like the more idealized version of like what's happening in real life and you know how like the Greta Gorick film like plays with you know, the romantic ending with Professor Bear versus, like, her, you know, in real life and kind of how, like, we don't actually know, like, what's really happening, what's just in the book and kind of interesting parallel with Saoirse Ronan, I guess. Um, And, uh, yeah, this idea of, like, kind of, like, what's this, like, Hollywood, I mean, like, what's this, like, kind of, like, Hollywood ending versus, like, real life ending and, like, why one works in a book that wouldn't work in, like, what wouldn't work in in a novel and does work in a novel and, like, what I think speaks to people's like taste in terms of like what they want to see in stories. And even like looking at like, you know, I think if Bryony wanted to be totally true to herself, she would have written the story as it actually happened. But even she wants to see that happy ending for them. And she wants to see, and I think part of that is her guilt, but I think part of that is also like, I mean, it's all her guilt. Like she, to like feel less guilty, she gives them this like romantic happy ending where they can be together forever. And the like, the like toxic toxin in their life is gone, which is Brady. 
<laughs> right, that, that, that Brian, or even just also like it kind of works within the angle of like what the war is because we mentioned like oh so many other people died in these various like very similar ways to how they yeah. actually died in reality versus like oh this is almost this idealized thing where just like what if we didn't have like a horrible giant war that killed people senselessly yeah in the exact same ways like constantly and it's just like oh they got to have their like beachside house and live happily ever after there is a weird kind of beauty to that which i think only i think works at the same time because we have the contrast of like that shit didn't happen i'm doing this to kind of like save face for myself a bit yeah just to kind of deal with that guilt right right so uh thomas any final thoughts final moments scenes you want to bring up any kind of um uh like parts of the film that you wanted to mention before we finish up here um, you know, another thing we didn't mention uh, her that much, but um, uh, James McAvoy's mom, mm, yeah, um, who he's who's with. Um, I for, I'm apologies, I forgot the actress's name. Uh, Brenda Blethyn, uh, who she played uh, Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice as well. A real yes. beautiful performance in that film too. Yeah, I, I just love the way that she is sort of portrayed as like in in other sort of war stories like this. You kind of have like the mother who stayed behind, who like had to watch her son like you know be taken off and then eventually die in war and stuff like that. I love the way they portray her and not let so much an idealized way as much as like in a very human way with like the stuff like oh um, you're completely different from your father and your your coat's hanging up. <laughs> upstairs like it's just really small beautiful intimate things like that especially when you see him have that like sort of mirage vision of her as he's what is most likely because of like the disease that would eventually kill him but just that he's got this like one moment where like his mom is there she's like why don't you take off your boots see if it's so hot yeah. in here and all this other stuff it's a great way of showing off that, like she is not necessarily just like oh i'm the caregiver for you in a traditional way as much as just like i'm uh you know a, a loving embrace that you need in right. a particular like rough time right yeah, and I especially liked, um, you know, when when he's being taken away by the police and she's saying, you know, liar, liar, like he's innocent, whatever. Like, part of me is like, oh, okay, lady, believe woman, okay. Um, but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, it's like she knows her son. I think same with Cecilia. Like they know him, and I just feel like they can't fathom any kind of situation where he would do something as horrendous as this, and. Um, and, you know, of course, like any guy is capable of anything, but I think that um, there's some things like it's so, you know, it's it's so she has such a like love and passion for him um, or she has like love and support for him. And Cecilia has such passion for him that, you know, they just know inherently that he's a good person and that he did not do these crimes. And, and I think that speaks to all their performances that they really sell this because, you know, it's really quite um, it's really a, a really a uncomfortable and upsetting sequence and, and part of the film and you know it's just like there no one's gonna believe her because she's lower class and you know the yeah, and also that briny that's like the first time when like she's watching from the window and she hears the liars it almost was like that's the first moment sinking in for her like oh there's other things i never considered right but right exactly and she's realizing that like oh right like i might not actually be correct about this and maybe i should have at least not said something so definitely Mm-hmm. all right thank you so much it was a, such a pleasure having you on the podcast talking about this amazing film um please let the listeners know where they can find you and all about your uh all your great work on on your own podcast double edge double bill 
Yes, um, you can find me at not the who's Tommy on most different socials that are either still up or crumbling at the moment <laughs> that we're recording this. Um, I, that's my username in most other places uh, like Letterboxd and Instagram, and if it's still around Twitter. Uh, but um, I also do double edge double as you mentioned, which would be at DEDB Pod at most of the socials. Where basically, uh, it's another Talk Film Society podcast where Adam, my co-host, and I cover um, a good and a bad feature every week that we pick at the end of the previous episode. And uh, like you mentioned, you were a guest uh, earlier this year. We did uh, historical romances uh, where we covered Sense and Sensibility and Tulip Fever, uh, just as the, the the very big contrast on one that you have most definitely would, would love. And then uh, a really terrible one that everyone forgot rightly. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's it's really quite amazing to think about, like, how hard it is to do one of these types of movies, like in the right way. Like, you know, like the contrast between like Atonement and Tulip Fever is like oceans wide and it's so hard to pull it off. Um, and it's so easy to get wrong. Um, really interesting to think about because this, this, I think these are, this is like a genre that I think a lot of people might take for granted or might, you know, not really understand, but you know, when you see a really good one and you see a really bad one, you can really tell the difference. Um, right. That's certainly what we strive for on the show, for sure. And also we have yeah. um, a Patreon, patreon.com slash DEDBpod, uh, where for just $1, you get like bonus podcasts and get to vote on topics and certain movies that we cover. Yes. Be sure to subscribe to all that. Listen to it. It's really a, it's, it's a really fun show. I love to hear all your discussions. Um, especially love hearing about when you guys talk about bad movies, it's very entertaining. Because, uh, you know, you guys aren't like just like rat trashing them. You like really thoughtfully discuss that. So I appreciate that. Um, well, yeah, I appreciate so, uh, you yeah. for saying that and also for inviting me on the show. It was great to be on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Oh my gosh. I'd love to have you back uh, anytime. Um, you can find me on Twitter at vertigay314 um, for the time being. Uh, I actually, I don't know, my prediction is I don't think Twitter is going away. I think it's just, it's, I don't know. I think I'll keep chugging along. It's going to outlive us all. Um, but who knows? <laughs> Until the heat death of the sun, Twitter will be there. Right, exactly. Um, and you can also follow the podcast at itpod2bu. Um, please remember to rate, review, subscribe, help you find the show. Uh, Thomas, thanks, thanks again. It was really quite wonderful. Um, and listeners, thanks for listening. 